your soul with all your mind with all your strength love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind All right, sing now. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my. With all my mind, with all my strength, I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Let's keep singing out. Sing it, church. Make a joyful noise. 
noise to the Lord on the earth. Flowers on the field crying to be heard. The trees of the forest are singing. In all of the mountains, where one voice are joining the chorus of this world. Take a seat. 
you'll bow your heads with me, we'll enter into a time of confession together. Psalm 98 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre and with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Father, we come before you this morning desiring to be your people, to make a joyful noise to you. But we also come confessing that we often keep our mouths shut. We often keep quiet with lives that don't celebrate you. And so, Lord, we confess that before you this morning, knowing that you are the righteous judge, but also knowing that you're not only just, but the one who justifies those who sin, and so we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that even though we don't always celebrate you as we should, that you gave grace to us, that you brought us back to yourself so that we could honor you with our lives, that we could have a life of purpose, that we could enjoy you, and as a result, enjoy restored relationships with each other. Help us to live a life that's different, Father. Help us to love you with everything we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
this song to you guys. It's a song called Forever Changed. Uh, it just talks about the hope we have in Christ, so you can listen along and uh, sing whenever you feel comfortable. Sing that 
the power of sin is broken I have been set free for I have died and Jesus is alive in me the power of sin is broken I have been set free for I have died and Jesus is this last song together. Satisfied, the 
darkness then and bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he proclaim that you are a powerful God. Lord, help us to stand in your strength alone. God, we thank you that you offer it to us, that you've rescued us and brought us to yourself. Lord, I pray that, um, God, you'll help us to trust you alone. God, help us to know you, to hear your word and put it into action. God, we thank you for your love. It's your name I pray. Amen. You'll stay standing for a second and greet someone near to you that you've not met yet. Tell them your name, where you're from. Get to know somebody. All right. We want you to get to know each other. And uh, one of the other cool things that we do at a church, beyond just shaking hands, is we try to support each other as families. We've got the joy of supporting the Hafes here as they dedicate their little baby, Olivia Joy. Is that right? Olivia Joy. Make sure. I always mess up names. Olivia Joy. And uh, we want to stand and support them as a church. If, you're, if you will stand with me one more time, you're going to get a lot of exercise today. I'm going to read Psalm 127 and uh, pray for the Hafe family. And I didn't ask y'all before, is there anything that you wanted to share about Olivia? I'm putting you on the spot here. Now everybody's standing and staring at you. Just really blessed to have her. Very good. Just thankful. Awesome. All right. Sorry about that. I'm supposed to cover that beforehand. <laughs> Didn't get that together. Let me read from Psalm 127 as we think about God's view of families, God's view of babies. He says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And uh, you all know about staying awake when you have a new baby. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Why don't you pray with me as I pray for the Hay family and uh, for little Olivia. 
Lord, we thank you for this family that loves you. We thank you for little Olivia and what a blessing and a gift she is, just as your word tells us. I pray for David and for Allie that they would, uh, that they would love you well in front of her, that they would love each other well, that they would model what it looks like to walk with you um, as they stumble and confess and repent and as they live in righteousness and make wise decisions. Lord, that all of that would point her to you that she would fall more deeply in love with you, be amazed at what a great God you are. We thank you for this privilege as, as brothers and sisters in Christ to support this family and pray that you'd help us to encourage them and uh, that Olivia would know you and love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Now you may be seated, finally, right? Finally, you may be seated. We, we have another baby dedication coming up tonight um, at 5 p.m. Those of you that are friends of uh, Tony and Heather Hamilton, if you'd like to join them for that tonight, that'll be at 5 at our third service. I want to tell you guys thank you for praying for that third service. And uh, it, was, it went pretty well last week. We'd been telling you we were looking for about 50 folks to commit and kind of sign up to be a part of that. And we had, I think, like 69 people in here in the auditorium. So that was very encouraging. We didn't even have everybody that said they were going to come show up, so that was, that was very cool. Um, we actually had a lot more kids than we were expecting, so child care was a little nuts, but we're, we're, adding, we're beefing that up, so we'll be ready if you want to come. Um, so thank you for, for praying for that, and continue to pray that the Lord would allow us. Um, again, we, we've said this before, but want to make clear, the goal is not to grow larger and take over the city, but the goal is to share Jesus with more people, and that's really our goal. So we would hope that you'd want to invite your friends here to hear about him, to meet him, to encourage them in their walk with him, um, whether that be at 9 or at 10.30 or at 5 or whenever that would be. Um, but we just feel blessed to get to share with new people who he is, what he's doing in our life. I um, want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it is uh, page 1,000. Page 1,000 in the black Bibles under the chairs. So you can borrow one of those. And uh, we said last week that we are calling this series a better Savior. There's this word, uh, this Greek word kreton, which means better or more excellent, that appears again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, other words as well that have this idea of superior, this idea of preeminent. And what we're going to see throughout this book is that Jesus will be compared to everything else that we might lean on. Everything else that we might look to for security, Jesus is going to be compared to that, and we're going to be told Jesus is better. And, and I told you last week, just like we struggle uh, in the 21st century, the people that this was written to in the first century, they also struggled. Just like we live in a broken world, and we're sad, and we're sick, and we have broken relationships, and we're fearful, and we want to go back to those old habits, and we want to go back to those old saviors, they struggled in the same way that we do. And so the advice that he's giving to them, God's word is speaking to them just as it's speaking to us, that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Don't trust on your other saviors. Don't trust on those old habits, but look to Jesus to be your, your strong tower, your place of refuge, your place of security. This week, the message is called a better messenger because specifically Jesus is going to be compared to the angels. And the angels were the messengers of God, Okay. Um, the word literally means messenger in the Greek. The, the Greek word, it's angelos. We say angel because angelos sounds weird in English. Um, but it's, the word just means messenger. That, that, that's all it means. It, it doesn't mean supernatural, weird creature with wings, right? Now, now, the Bible says that often God's messengers were 
supernatural weird creatures with wings, right? So it describes them in that way, but the word itself just means messenger. And so what I want us to think about is what are the messengers of God in our life that we're wanting to maybe put too much stock in and we're missing the boat and not seeing this better messenger, which is Jesus himself. Jesus, who is both the messenger and the message itself, the message of God's reconciliation with us, the message of God's justice and love towards us. So don't miss Jesus, the better messenger. And so he's going to be compared again and again to the angels, to the messengers of God, to help us understand that he's the better one. He's the one we should be looking to. So we'll read uh, in chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4, which was kind of our last verse last week. And we'll see this again and again in Hebrews. I want you to be able to see that it's, it's one big sermon. I'm just not smart enough to preach it in one sitting. I have to break it into pieces, right? But it, it all connects. And so we'll, we'll often be going back and forth, you know, looking at some verses from last week and looking ahead at verses for next week. So we'll pick up in verse 4, which kind of ended last week and begins this week, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then that takes him off in this new direction, comparing to angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all, are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your message and for the better messenger that is your son, Jesus. I pray that you would help us to to open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear you, that we would not resist you. Lord, send your Holy Spirit so that, that we could that we could hear you, that we could be transformed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever been to a wedding? Anyone here ever been to a wedding? Either yours or someone else's, right? Yeah, okay. So you're, you're somewhat familiar with how this works, at least here in American culture. In, in American culture, you usually have these attendants. Uh, to borrow some of the language from verse 14 of Hebrews, you might say ministering spirits, right? You, you have these serving people that are kind of on the side, and their, their job, the, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, their job is to point to the groom and the bride, right? Yeah, and that's the job is to point to them. They're there to serve, to support, to encourage, right? Their job is to, is to push this couple together, to honor them, and, and that's what they're there for. That they're, they're props, basically, Right? Much in the same way that that's the angel's job to point to God, to point to Jesus. What do you do when the bride comes in the back of the room? Anybody know? You stand up, right? And where do you look? Do you just keep facing the front? 
No, no, everybody turns, right? Everybody turns and they look as the bride comes in and then the bride comes in and then the rest of the time you're focused on the bride and the groom and what's going on here. The scriptures tell us that, that really marriage is this beautiful picture of Jesus and that that's really the whole point of marriage is to, is to honor God and to glorify him and to show the world the love that God has for his people. And so if you're an attendant in a wedding, your job is to point to that message that's standing there before you. And you are the messenger that points to the true message. In the same way, the angel's job is, is the supporting cast. They are the messengers of God. So here's, as the author here is, is talking about angels and comparing Jesus to angels, he's not saying angels are worthless and stupid and don't pay attention to them. No, he's saying we have a better messenger in Jesus. He's more important. And as I said, week after week, the, the author here is going to say there are these other things that sometimes distract us. There are these other trappings that we start to think, oh, that's what really matters. And he's saying, no, 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 this is what matters. Jesus is the point. He is the, the better Savior. He is the better messenger. And he is the, the message itself. He's the, he's the point of everything we do. Now, he begins comparing them. And he's going to show some key dif differences between Jesus and these other messengers of God. Starting in verse 4 and then in verse 5, it tells us that he is an intimate messenger. He, he has a special relationship with God that nobody else has, right? He has a special intimacy, this closeness, and it's described in this way in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And you may be wondering, what is the mysterious name, right? Does he mean J-E-S-U-S -S or C-H-R-I-S-T? You know, and you may think in a real uh, literal kind of, what are the words on the page? And what he's really talking about here when he talks about name is the position that Jesus has, the position of intimacy with God, the unity that Jesus has with God. And that's explained here in verse 5. Really, the rest of this chapter is explaining this name and what it means. But specifically here in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus has a supernatural name, a superior name, a better name, and that name is Son. It's, it's a position. It's not that you have to say Son all the time and that's his official name. It's that that's the position that he has. That's who he is. He has this place of intimacy, this closeness with the Father, this oneness with the Father. I have a picture here of a father holding up his son. If you have kids, kids may frustrate you, but they also are a delight to you, Right? And you have this special closeness to them. They are a part of you. My son uh, recently was having some physical problems. And, and when you hear a diagnosis and there's you know, something wrong, it, it hurts. It, it hurts you inside. I think it bothered me more than him that he was having some back trouble. And it, it just hurts you inside when there's, there's something wrong with your child. Because you delight in them. There's an intimacy there. There's a closeness there. Because you love them. They are one with you. And, and Jesus as the Son of God stands in for God. As we'll see in the rest of this chapter, and we saw in the previous part of the chapter as well, he's, he's there with God on the throne. He represents God himself. When you look at Jesus, you see God. It's interesting, it says, no other son has he made this promise to, because there are other places uh, where the angels are called the sons of God collectively, but they're never said, he never says to one angel, you're my son, I love you. He never speaks to angels that way. Angels are more like butlers, 
uh, in God's service. You know, they're, they're attendants. They are servants that point. They're messengers that point to God and who he is. So there's a couple of Psalms where it talks about the sons of God, kind of as a collective group, and it just kind of make, basically means like mighty ones. You know, they're these great supernatural creatures. But here he speaks directly to Jesus saying, you are my son. And this is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. If, if you know your Old Testament at all, there was this famous King David who was known for being a man after God's own heart, right? So the first king of Israel, Saul, he didn't follow God. And the second king, David, he had a lot of problems too, but he kept repenting. He kept trusting in God. He had this special, intimate relationship with God. And God made promises to him saying, David, you will have an eternal throne. Basically, you will have a, de- a descendant, someone from your dynasty will reign forever. And there are these promises about how great his kingdom would be. And some of those promises were kind of partially fulfilled in Solomon. You know, Solomon had this great wealth and this impressive kingdom. And that was kind of like an immediate short-term kind of God showing, see, you can trust me. I'm doing great things through your line. But you also know if you've read the Old Testament, that quickly things went bad, right? Those Old Testament kings, they just got worse and worse, really starting with David himself. His sin then infected his son Solomon. And then it just it just all fell apart, and the story of the kings is really just a story of sin and, and brokenness and rebellion and all kinds of bad things there. But there are these promises that God made, and it's quoted here in Psalm 2, 7, and 2 Samuel seven fourteen. That's what the author is quoting here in verse 5. It's promised that, that God would have a son that would descend from David. And this son would be a special kind of son, not just the intimacy that he had with David as a man after God's own heart, but that he would have a son that reigned forever, someone who would have an eternal throne. And Jesus proved this in the resurrection. And that's picked up again and again throughout the New Testament. You see this in the preaching of the apostles. In Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul talks about the resurrection proving Jesus as the one that's incorruptible, right? He didn't rot in the grave. And that's another promise made in the Psalms about the Messiah, about this future son of David that will be king well, this son of David that will be king is, is supernatural. He's not just an ordinary descendant of David, but it can only be fulfilled by Jesus, who is both man, a son of David, and God himself, incorruptible, indestructible, invincible, the one who, who rose from the dead. We see that also in Romans 1.4. He says kind of the same thing, that the resurrection proved that Jesus is the son of God. And this is kind of a difficult theological point, but I want to make this because I think this is important for you um, just to, to think this through a little bit, because a lot of cults talk about uh, the importance of Jesus being born in space and time, and they use that as a proof hex then that Jesus is created. And the scriptures are definitely clear that Jesus entered space and time. He was born uh, at Christmas. Right? That's what we celebrate, Jesus being born as, as a baby. And, and so there's that reality that he entered space and time, but he's always been the Son of God. Okay, And so him being born in space and time and then living a perfect life and then dying the death that you and I deserve to die, and then rising from the dead, that was proof that he's the incorruptible son of God. It wasn't that he wasn't the son of God until that point, and then he magically became that. He was always the son of God. He's always been one with the Father. He was there creating the world with the Father. It tells us in earlier in Hebrews 1, and in Colossians 1, and in these other places in John chapter 1. So, so he's always been the son of God. He's always been God, but he, in space and time, became that in a sense, proved that, lived that out as he conquered death for you and me. And so this is an important thing to understand that this intimate relationship he has with the Father has been there since eternity past, 
and then it was displayed for the world through his death and resurrection. It's now on display. Now we all see it. Now we talk about it. We hear about it. He has this eternal throne. So only Jesus can fulfill the promises of the Davidic covenant. If you read the Davidic covenant, and then you read a lot of the Psalms that talk about the king and the messianic king type Psalms, they don't make sense unless there is Jesus. They don't make sense apart from Jesus because the author continually in the Psalms is switching from the king, and he's talking in Jewish king terms, some son of David being the king, and then he's talking about praising him as God, and then he's talking about him ruling the universe from God's throne. And, and that only makes sense in Jesus. That only comes together in the fulfillment of who Jesus is, is, is completely God and completely man. Now, the, the Jewish folks were really into angels, and, and there was a fad, I think, 10 years ago that a lot of people in America were into angels too. I don't know if that's so much anymore. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand if you are into angels. But, you know, I don't think people are into angels as much anymore. And I was trying to think of what this looks like for us, where we might um, settle for second best. You know, where we might settle for the messengers of God instead of God himself, Jesus, the one who's the better messenger, who has this intimate relationship with God himself, being one with God. And, and I think sometimes the most dangerous place this happens is in churches where we settle for the trappings, we settle for the device that communicates the message instead of settling for the message itself. Does that make sense? And so you may come, for a, for a, uh, you come to a church and the church honors Jesus and this church does things in a certain way. And you start to think that the way this church does things, that's really important. And I just want to challenge you today that, that the way a church does things is always secondary to the message itself. Don't mix up the messenger and the message. Don't mix up the preacher with the message that the preacher is preaching. Don't mess, mix up the, the church with the Jesus that the church is pointing to. Do, do, you, do you see the difference? And, and that people fall into this. It's, it's a subtle trap that happens. We here, um, we work hard at kind of stripping away, you know, a lot of the extra fluff and traditions and stuff. And we, we do that not because we think those are bad, but we do that for the sake of clarity. And what happens is people kind of fall into to two camps with that. Hopefully, people can just see Jesus. That's, that's the goal, right? But some people think, oh, that's the way to do church, right? That that's the way you're supposed to do it, that, that, that you're supposed to do it this way. You're supposed to have a, a beautiful building like this, and that's the only way to do church, right? I, I joked earlier, nobody really thinks that about the building. But, you know, with other things, right, like we've got a great music team, and maybe, that's, maybe we think that's the way to do music. Well, no, that's just the way God's gifted that music team. That's that's how they play music, right? Or maybe the way I preach is the way that people are supposed to preach. Well, no, that's just who I am, but I'm trying to preach about Jesus, right? And we've got to distinguish the, the message from the messenger and not get caught up in those things. As a matter of fact, when you, when you look for other churches, don't look for a church when you move from this town that does things just like Grace Bible Church. Look for a church that points to Jesus like Grace Bible Church. That's an important distinction to make. The, the style is secondary, it's the message. That's what really matters. And so that's why the author here is saying, look to Jesus. He's the better messenger because he's the message itself. When you're looking at that messenger, he is the message. The message of a God who gave himself for us. A God who conquered sin and death. The other thing that we see is, as we move on here is that he's authoritative. He has an authority. He has a throne, right, that the angels don't have. As I said, the angels serve. Their job is to point to the message, to the ultimate messenger. And Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's the one that's authoritative. In verse 6, it says, Again, when he brings the firstborn 
into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This again is more on what I was saying about Jesus not being, uh, the focus not being on how he was born. We know he was born as a man, but when it says firstborn, what it means is first. Uh, this word in the Greek, is a, it's a word of rank. And you see the same thing in Colossians 1, the same term is used. And what I would say is think of it as first kin would be maybe a better way to think about it. Because when we say firstborn, we, we get all caught up in the birth process, I think, sometimes. And, and then the, the cults start making sense, and we start thinking, oh, well, they're talking about how he was created. Well, no, he wasn't a created being, but he is first. That, that's his rank. He is first, and, and that's uh, articulated here. Let all God's angels worship him. He, he is first. as a position of primacy. Uh, the word uh, only begotten has the same kind of connotation. It talks about his unique role. It's the Greek word monogenes, and it means his uniquely kin son, right? And firstborn is prototokos. Again, it's with the emphasis on the proto, the, the first. It, it means he has this chief rank, and that's what we should uh, emphasize here is, is not that he is some sort of created being, but that he is preeminent. He is better. He is superior. He's more excellent. Those phrases that are appear again and again in Hebrews. Verse 7 says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. You know, we talk about uh, angels, they're, they're spirits, they're supernatural. Sometimes they look like people. Sometimes they're, talk about the seraphs, they're, they're flames of fire in some sort of form. We're well, saying that they have this kind of transitory spiritual nature, but Jesus is preeminent, Right? The angels are just winds. The angels are just flames of fire. But Jesus is first. He's the prototokos. He is the firstborn. Let all God's angels worship him. That's what he's saying. In verse 8 it says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And here I feel like we're, we're getting kind of two perspectives on authority. The first is he is prototokos. He is firstborn. He has the rank. He is, he is king, and you must worship him. He has the authority of position and rank. And then he gets into he also has the authority of character, right? He has the authority of actually being righteous. It, we should follow him because he actually lives rightly. He does the right things. He makes the right choices. And we often have those kinds of authority in our world as, as well, right? There's positional authority, and then there's authority based on your ability or your accomplishments. There are two kinds of authority. Ideally, they go together, right? Hopefully, someone with a position actually has accomplishments to match it. But sometimes, people don't have an, a position, but in an organization, people follow them because they're righteous, because they do things right. They do things with excellence. They have maybe ability in that area or that kind of skill. Other times, people just have a position, and you, you have to follow them because they're authority of position. Well, Jesus has both. He's both the authority of, of position and rank and also the authority of, of doing things rightly, having the ability to do what we can't do. We, we can't consistently love what is right and hate what is evil, but Jesus does it for us. And again, that's that substitution that we need. We need his grace because we can't love people the way we should, but, but here he, he does that. I, I grabbed a couple of pictures here. When we hear the word throne and the authority he has as a throne, I, f I found a picture of like a gold inlaid throne. I think this is a Chinese throne. And a reminder again that what we saw earlier in, in chapter 1 is that Jesus is on the throne with God. That means he is God. He rules with God. It's not sitting at his right hand doesn't mean uh, at a table and he's like the first in line. 
It means, no, he's on the throne with God. He is one with God. Uh, other things that we think about uh, when we think about authority, uh, we think about the White House, right? That would be the highest position in our land. When, when you say the word throne, uh, you wouldn't necessarily think of authority, but when you said White House, you might think of, oh, position of power, executive, right? The person in charge. Um, another thing that we think about, so this would be an authority of position, right? Uh, whether you like who's in that office or not, he holds that office. And then this one would be, this is a diploma. So this, to me, is symbolic of, of that authority of accomplishment, right? Authority of achievement. Um, you know, PhD may not mean much to you. You, you may know a PhD that, that can't find his way out of a paper bag, but, but often it means, it means accomplishment, right? They've done something. Whether it's a skill, whether it's a degree, whether, like Jesus, it's right living, there are these two kinds of authority. And I want us to think about, as we think about that Jesus is the one with the ultimate authority, what do we do with our authority? If he's the ultimate authority, do you use your authority to point to him, or do you take it on yourself? We talked about how when people would would be messengers for God, whether it's the angels in Revelation or whether it's the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, people would bow to them and want to submit to their authority. And they would say, no, 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 don't bow to me. God is the authority. I'm not an authority. And I think that's important that somehow we learn to apply that in the authority that we have. Whether you have positional authority, you're in charge of people. Are you using that as a way to point people to Jesus, the ultimate authority? How can you do that? How can you deflect the attention from you onto him? Help people understand that you're put in that position by God's grace and through your righteousness, you're going to reflect who he is and make wise choices and point to him and say, it's not, it's not about me, it's about him and what he has done. Or maybe you have abilities and gifts. Maybe you don't have any kind of position, but you've got some gifts. God's given you some skills. Are you going to use those skills? Are you going to use those accomplishments? Are you going to use that resume to point people to Jesus, the ultimate authority? Because as God's people, we are all messengers. If you take on the name Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, then you are a messenger of Christ. You may not have cool wings and fire like an angel, but, but he wants you to, to speak of him. He wants you to communicate who he is with your life and with your words, with the authority, with whatever position you've been given. And I'd say even some of you this morning are thinking, whew, I'm, I'm clear because I have no authority whatsoever. Everybody has someone that's looking to them. No matter how low you think you are, people are looking to you. People are following you. And, and you should use that, that influence to point people to Jesus, the, the ultimate authority. Well, the last thing that we see, uh, and I think the most exciting kind of the, the uh, climax of this whole point, is that he's a conquering messenger. He's a messenger that conquers. He's different from the angels, right? He has this intimate relationship with God as God's own son. He has this authority as king. He's on the throne with God, and he's also conquering. The world we see now doesn't look conquered yet, right? And we're going to get more explanation of that as we dig into chapter 2 next week. But Jesus is the one that will conquer. He is the one that will endure. And so because of that, we can trust him. We don't have to go back to our old saviors, but we can trust him as the better savior. It says in uh, chapter 1 again, verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He's quoting Psalm 102 here. Again, he just keeps quoting the Old Testament again and again and again throughout 
this passage. And he's saying this king, this better messenger, so superior to the angels, he's even superior to all of creation. He made it, and when he's done with it, he'll just roll it up, right? Like an old dirty t-shirt. Here's a picture of the galaxy. Think about just the awe you feel if you've ever looked at pictures from the Hubble telescope. Anybody ever seen some of those pictures or pictures, other pictures from NASA? Um, just, just space is so vast. It's so big. We, our brains cannot even comprehend it, how incredible the heavens are. And he says he made all that. And he says he's just going to roll it up like an old shirt. I have a picture here of, of laundry hanging on the line. To Jesus, the galaxy and the stars and the, you know, the space and billions of miles and light years, it's just like laundry. Just like an old shirt. He'll just roll it up. It says he will endure. It says you are the same. Your years will have no end. It says like a garment, they will be changed. And it's an important emphasis in Christian theology that the universe won't just cease to exist, but God is going to transform it, Right? Whether you think about him, you know, throwing it away and making a new garment, or you think about him washing it, or whatever analogy you want to think of, theologians argue about how that process actually takes place. And this morning, I'm going to let you know that I don't know how that process actually takes place, okay? But, but we know it will be changed. It will be transformed. Paul talks about it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we don't even know the glory that the next life is going to have. We can't even get that. We just know it's going to be more glorious, going to be incredible. Our bodies will be transformed. We'll have bodies, but without the sin and the sickness. Can you imagine that? I, I can't even imagine that, right? It, all of the good and none of the bad. We'll, we'll have the awe and the wonder of the stars and the heavens without the distractions, without the desire to suppress the truth and lie and, and look to other things, and give other things credit instead of God. Everything will be transformed. Everything will be perfect. So he's the one that will endure. And then in verse 13, this is kind of the climax because he's quoting uh, Psalm 110, which is what he started with way back in last week's passage in verse 3. He says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the conquering king, right? Your enemies will be a footstool for your feet. He will stand victorious over them. He is this conquering messenger. He's not just the lowly servant that the angels are. And when you read stories in the Old Testament about the angels, they still, they still really scared people, right? They were still amazing. And he's saying, but they're just lowly servants compared to this authoritative, this conquering king that is Jesus. He'll make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And for those of you that that uh, get bored when we don't talk about ourselves, finally we come into the picture here, right? We've been talking about Jesus all this time. We've been talking about angels all this time. And now he makes this connection to us. Aren't angels just servants sent out to minister to those who will inherit salvation? And here the connection is made, and this connection will be made clearer next week in chapter 2 when he starts talking about humanity and humanity's relationship to Jesus who's made superior to the angels. And he's going to tie all of this together next week. But I want to make a little application from Ephesians chapter 4. Because there's the similar concept of Jesus talked about in Ephesians 4. Another psalm, Psalm 68, is quoted in, in Ephesians 4. And it talks again about Jesus as this conquering king. And he leads captives behind him. And he gives good gifts to men. So he's this conquering king, this invincible king that we can trust. And it says in Ephesians that because of all this stuff 
that Jesus has done, because he is conquering, because he is invincible, then we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called us. Philippians says it like this. It says, therefore, let us live up to what we've already attained. If he's already conquered sin and death for us, why do we keep looking back to sin and death to be our saviors? Why do we keep looking back to what hurts us to to give us satisfaction and health and salvation and security and peace? He says in Ephesians 4.1, I, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul talking, he's in chains, and as a prisoner in the brokenness of this world, Paul's known the pain that you know. The first century wasn't any different than now. It was still broken just like we're broken today. People were still sick. People were still in trouble. People still had difficult relationships. Paul, as a prisoner, says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Don't get sidetracked by the difficulty and the pain that you're going through and use that as an excuse to go back to old saviors. The message of Hebrews is that Jesus is the only one that can truly save. He's the only safe place for us to run to. He's the only one that we can trust. And that's why we have the warning in chapter 2. Again, we're going we're gonna to kind of bleed into next week, and the next week we'll hit this in more detail. But in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There's this propensity that we have to drift away from this message. This propensity that we have to drift away from Jesus and say, Jesus isn't really working out right now. You know, he's not getting me the new car. He's not taking away my pain. He's not fixing my spouse. So, so maybe I need something else. Maybe I need some other formula besides Jesus. The author says, do not drift away. Pay careful attention. Verse 2 says, For since the message that was declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He's talking about the law. In Jewish tradition, they understood that the angels helped to give the law to Moses. He's saying, since those angels were reliable, and they're nothing compared to Jesus, how much more should we trust Jesus? Verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's the only option. He's our only hope. Everything else fails us. Jesus is our only option. Trust in him. Don't trust in in the old saviors. Don't fall back to these other messages. Don't go back to the trappings, the messengers, but focus on the message himself, Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. I think some of you today may be struggling with the drifting part, right? I, I know I struggle with that. Some of you may be drifting. If you're there right now, I'd love to pray with you. I could have some of the elders and deacons come up if there's several of you, and we could pray with you about that about drifting, about paying more careful attention to Jesus, not drifting away and going back to old habits, going back to old saviors. Some of you may be hearing this for the first time, like in a new way. You've always thought it was about the trappings, right? You always thought it was about the building or about the the preacher or about the class or about the style or about the rituals. And, And for the first time, you're getting that, no, it's about Jesus. He's the one that has conquered sin and death for you. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. And he died the death that you needed to die to take your place, to become your substitute. If you trust in him, you can have hope. You can have salvation. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you about that as well after the service. I'd love to pray with you about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you for life. Lord, help us to not get distracted by the messengers, by the trappings of the message by the wrapper that things come in, but help us to, to hear you, to see you, 
to know you and, and walk with you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.